the chariot stuff. Do that. Okay, that sounds good. Hey, everybody, we're just going to get started in one second, running a little bit behind schedule. That's me. Uh, so <laughs> welcome to another Tech Chat Tuesday. It is Tuesday. How about that? Um, September 29th, 2020. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Becker Effort. And we're here to give you some news and grab bag of interesting things that are going on out there. Um, just getting rolling here. Uh, let me share my screen. And we'll do the crazy looking, there we go, whoa, it's so cool. Talk about events first. So uh, in case you missed it from our last couple of episodes, we have an upcoming event uh, on October 21st, uh, about 3 p.m.-ish. Uh, uh, we've got a, uh, it starts at 3.15, which is why I say ish. We have a Java at 25 uh, retrospective and futures event. We're going to have, uh, we're going to start it off by talking about our experiences with, with Java at Chariot Solutions since we started in 2002, uh, if I got that right. And uh, so we start with that. And then we're going to, uh, after that, we're going to switch over to doing a discussion um, with um, Brian Getz, who is the Java architect, the language architect of Java at Oracle. So this should be really great. Um, he's spoken at several affiliate emerging technologies for the enterprise events that we hosted. Um, and this is being run by us and also uh, the Philly Jug is involved as well. Now, the cool thing about this one, in addition to the speakers, uh, is that we have a little happy hour going on. Uh, we're kicking around Gather. I think that's what we're going to end up using. Um, we, uh, we're partnering with two local companies. Uh, now, Lalacombe is a great coffee place. We will give you discounts on ordering from there. So if you're a Philly native and you're registering for this, it's kind of in lieu of being physically there because we can't really do physical events in the, in the coronavirus age right now. Uh, you can order some coffee and sip along and have some Java. Uh, and then Workhorse Brewing has a vanilla coffee porter. We're going to also have discounts for that as well. I believe both do deliver, right, Becca? Yeah, that's right. And also Workhorse Brewing, that's a collaboration with Saxby's too. So just one more Philly company in there. Yep, there you go. So that's a great event. And you can get that at, uh, let me drop it in here. And it's Let's free see. too. So you just it's have to a free write event. It yeah, free event. So that's awesome. So let me post that. So that's Java at 25. All right. Uh, in addition to that, let's see what's going on, on our blog. I know we've had some content. Cherry hits a fire. Oh, that's bad. Okay. Uh, on our blog, we have um, a couple things rolling around right now. One of the things that's most recent is our, our one of our common uh, guests that we have on a lot, uh, Matt Gilbride, one of our architects and developers uh, is looking at Vue 3.0. He's worked with Vue in the past. Uh, he's been doing a lot of functional React. Uh, and so he's really getting impressed with Vue 3 and he's spending some time on that. Uh, and it turns out that one of the biggest things about Vue 3 is they're doing a lot of the same stuff that um, React is doing. Uh, and so what they're dealing with is they're dealing with the functional components uh, and they have a concept called the Hooks API that React used first. And the Hooks API is giving concepts of state or side effects to a functional component. Uh, the Vue API apparently is doing this now too in Vue 3.0. And apparently Vue's documentation for what Matt is saying is really, really great on this. Um, you know, he's this uh, nice link to the article. And they've got a really nice color-coded uh, view. <laughs> Uh, view of the view content right there. Now, of course, I can't zoom in on it, which figures. Um, 
but I'm sure if I figure out the button for that. Anyway, the point being, it's outlined pretty well. I'm not sure how you view this. Uh, I'm going to have to ask Matt how he can actually decipher this because it's bits. <laughs> anyway, so that's uh, a Vue.js. We have this uh, interesting um, post from Matt thinking that that's something you want to spend some time on. Uh, we also had a really good re uh, review last week uh, on, the, on the show. We had a really good uh, review. If I go to TechCast here. Drew DeCarm had a really good overview of Next.js and Gatsby. Uh, and even Gatsby.js noticed that and liked that on Twitter. So uh, you can listen to that or view it on the uh, Chariot uh, video stream. I'll just drop the actual TechCast podcast in there. And there's that. All right. Okay, so uh, that's that. Uh, let me go back to my list of things to talk about here. Becca, do you have an article to start with? Yeah, so you had all the chariot stuff. Um, I just wanted to start with some Wikipedia Easter eggs, like literal Easter eggs. Okay, I'm going to unshare here. Yep. So I know you were talking last week about big O notation, how you were getting. Actually, if you want to pull that article up first. Yeah, let me find that real quick. Yeah, go, go ahead and keep vamping for a second for me if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So <laughs> um, as we were talking about big O notation and just how it's, it kind of can make your brain collapse, um, I brought up this, I found this, it's simple.wikipedia.com. And it's basically like simple English Wikipedia. So any article, no matter how complex or how deeply technical, it like breaks it down for you like five years old. Um, so I just thought that was a really fun and interesting little Wikipedia Easter egg. And I started just looking for more Easter eggs. So it turns out that there's an Easter egg on the Wikipedia page for Easter egg. So um, <laughs> for people, when I say Easter egg, I mean like just a little a little joyful feature or hidden thing um, that you find in like a movie or on a website, like that kind of Easter egg. So um, if you pull up, actually I'm gonna pull it up on my screen real quick. Yeah, you have to share, there you go. All right. So you go to the um, page for Easter egg media specifically if you find this little hedgehog in the corner here, you get a little tool tip that says, I'm a hedgehog, not an egg. And if you click on it. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was really fun. And also like, as I was looking at this page, um, it goes into the origin of where the term Easter egg came from. And interestingly mm -hmm. enough, it comes from um, Adventure, that game for the Atari. Um, so apparently at the time, Atari wouldn't put any of the developers' names in the credits. Um, the fear was that other companies would see those names in the credits and snipe all their employees. Hmm. Um, so one employee, this guy, Warren Robinette, went and made a specific pixel. You can see on the screen, he called it the gray dot, that when you hovered over it, it would say created by Warren Robinette. Um, ah. So that was that was just like his little way of getting in his credit where it was due, and eventually, as time rolled on, it ended up getting too expensive to remove this pixel, so they just left it in there, um, and it became sort of like the original Easter egg, which was pretty cool. Yeah, this by the way, I have the uh, article from uh, last week. Let's see here if I can pull this up. I'll steal this back from you. 
um, is uh, did we did we cover this last week or we just talked about it last week? I think we just talked about it. Yeah, I think we just talked about it. But uh, there's a really nice little article from developerinsider.co. Um, and, and so Vineet Chowdhury uh, put together this uh, big O complexity set of examples uh, and really simple examples of big O notation. And for, of course, a lot of computer scientists uh, think in this term, like at least when they're looking at the complexity of code to figure out how much time the code is going to take, whether it's going to scale linearly in some way, whether it's going to be more of a exponential curve or, you know, a log curve. Um, so, you know, how much time it's going to take as you scale up the amount of data you feed the function. Uh, and so they've got some really nice examples here, just in simple code, like O of one is, is constant time, meaning that all I'm doing is I'm printing out the first element of the array. So no matter how big the array is, it's always going to just access one element of that array. Who cares if it's a million items or one? Of course, memory cares, but you know, you don't care for this function's purpose. Uh, o of n, which is if I got a million things in the array, I've got to walk through all million. If I've got 50 of them, I've got to walk through 50 of them. Uh, so this is linear time. Uh, if you've got two loops, it's the outer loop times the inner loop. So that's O of n squared, because it's basically loop times loop or loop squared. So you can think of something where if you're walking through a set of rows in a database uh, on your screen and you're turning it into a set of fields, well, this is going to square uh, scale by the square in terms of time taken by the square of the amount of data you're going to send into it uh, because you're doing an, a nested loop uh, and so on. So, you know, it's a nice article for that. So uh, I'll put this in here just in case we didn't cover it last week. But it's a, a really nice introduction to that concept if you haven't really wrestled with it in terms of, you know, uh, tech before. Let me see here. And there it is. Okay. All right. Uh, let me go back to my list here again. Um, sorry, we're in a little bit late this morning, so I'm just a little bit frazzled. I will get my stuff together here. All right. Another topic. I found an interesting... Um, angle on GraphQL, uh, and it was when I was looking through uh, some tooling and some examples on, on GraphQL on hackurls.com, uh, hack, uh, hack uh, someone was talking about doing something, and they referenced the, um, they referenced the, the uh, Apollo Yoga project, GraphQL Yoga project, which is kind of defunct now. Uh, it's no longer being maintained. Um, and then I was digging around a little bit, and I found this little tiny section of the uh, Apollo server, which is the serverless Apollo server Lambda. I didn't know this existed, um, or maybe I did and I forgot it already, but this is a Lambda that when you install it on AWS, turns on a GraphQL server with Apollo. So in other words, the Apollo server running as a serverless, um, uh, serverless function. Uh, and so they have an example if you're going to deploy this with the serverless application model, which is AWS's um, serverless API, uh, you know, they show a sample here uh, where they're creating a, a simple hello query uh, resolver for it and then generating an Apollo server. And they're doing this uh, by running a Lambda function for the Apollo server. So this is truly serverless GraphQL. Now, I know there is a GraphQL implementation uh, out there in AWS. Uh, that, that's it's very you know large and has lots of features to it. But if you just need a simple GraphQL server based on Apollo, all you do is you build that 
Um, looks like in this example here, uh, we're deploying the, the Lambda to a, a, an a S3 bucket. Uh, and then we have a, a little cloud formation template to install it. So if you follow the, the guide in here, if you're an AWS person uh, and you're looking to experiment with GraphQL, but you want control over the code completely uh, that you're running, you could do it this way. Um, and you just deploy it. And then you can uh, you can do things like introspect the request and deal with cores, headers, if you're looking for security stuff. So it's a really interesting feature uh, that I'm hacking around with this week. So maybe I'll have some comments about that next week when we come back again. Well, speaking of AWS, didn't you do a webinar last week? It's on the Chariot site under screencasts. I don't want to point now. Yes, of course I did. Hold on a second. <laughs> uh, you, you found that out. No. So if I go to uh, chariotsolutions.com slash screencasts, uh, you're right. Um, I've done so much this last week that's been uh, hard to track. So I did do a 45-minute uh, talk. Uh, this was for Philly Tech Week. And this was uh, all the AWS code build you can stomach in 45 minutes. That's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but the idea is that uh, code build is a continuous integration building tool, uh, you know, like Jenkins or Circle CI. Uh, and one of the biggest benefits of it is that it actually runs inside of AWS itself. It can run behind your VPCs, your virtual private clouds, and access your databases if you want to reset data uh, or call services for you. Uh, it can interact with the AWS APIs, and you can give it rights and privileges to run the CLI or run the APIs in Java or what have you. Uh, and you can even deploy to Docker with it. So what I did was I gave a 45-minute talk with some Q&A at the end, uh, and there's some sample code linked to it as well. Uh, so that's up at Chariot Solutions slash screencast. Uh, yeah, check it out if you're looking into doing continuous integration builds with AWS, it's certainly uh, something that might be useful to you. Becca, do you have another uh, topic? It's all Wikipedia today. I really fell down that hole hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, so um, I found a really, really good article about the, the ultimate wiki known. Um, this guy's username is Giraffe Data, and his real name is Brian Henderson. Um, at the time of writing this article, um, it's just like a little bio about him on Medium. I'll drop the link in here. Um, he had made exactly 47,000 edits on the on one single grammatical error. Um, so what he focuses on is use the use of the word comprised of. So apparently saying comprised of isn't grammatically correct. You're supposed to say consisted of or composed of. Um, so this guy scours the internet for every usage of the the phrase comprised of and makes his edits. So this is the time of writing this article was like 2015. He was at like 47,000. I can only imagine where he's at today. Um, and I I still can't even really talk through. Hang on, let me drop this yeah. here. Oh yeah. So um, this is the the Medium article about Brian Henderson. <laughs> this is the guy user giraffe data. Um, one one error, and like I said, I can't even go into the intricacies of when you should use comprised of versus the other two. Um, mm -hmm. But don't worry, he made a six thousand word article <laughs> defending his choice. So I'll also drop that here too as well. Oh my um, gosh, uh, the guy is is thorough. Um, so 
He's the ultimate Wikinome. I think he got awarded Wikipedia's kind of like special award. I forget the name of it that they give to the, the best editors and contributors. Um, but just one little mistake. That's all he focuses on. Do you think he's the person that like when you say something wrong in conversation, he's immediately, you know, to whom? he's that guy yeah even the other day when we were getting your aws webinar set up i know you pointed out something about an oxford comma and like i know some people will die on that hill (laughs) yeah yeah it's true of course i'm the old fogey that uses two spaces after a period so and everyone's like why do you do that and the answer is i use typewriters that's how old i am and i I had a dial phone you know so all all the people who are watching this like you use the dial phone i'm still alive (laughs) knock wood all right anyway so uh here's another fun one um and actually not so fun but it's 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 an odd one anyway let me share my screen here so youtube is stopping their crowdsourced uh captions uh so the 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 very very snarky uh ars technica article title is YouTube celebrates Deaf Awareness Week because it is Deaf Awareness Week by killing crowdsourced captions, uh, unfortunately. So apparently there's a huge signature campaign. 500,000 signatures are trying to keep uh, YouTube from uh, shutting down this accessibility feature. And I guess this is hard for them to keep maintain. I'm sure there's lots of really bad crowdsourced content out there, but there's probably a lot of good crowdsource content out there too. So when you click on your captions, they were allowing you to crowdsource and, and you know, edit the timeline and put content in there uh, for things that are more technically challenging. And unfortunately, it's, they're getting rid of this community contributions feature, which is, which is kind of a shame. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. One thing that annoys me, and this is just as someone who, uh, you know, wastes too much time on Facebook as another old fogey, um, is that whenever they put videos up, they turn the captions on, you can't turn them off. Mm-hmm. And I find that really painful when I'm watching comedy because I don't want the punchline before I see the punchline. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're not, using, they're not using YouTube. They're using their own player. And in YouTube, you can turn on or off the captions. And I, I do find captions really useful sometimes if I'm not paying attention to it completely and I want to kind of browse it and have, have it up in the corner and check out what's going on periodically. Um, but, uh, now instead of the free in-house solution, um, the company shutdown post pushes users to paid third party alternatives like amara.org. Um, mm, so anyway, that's what's going on there. Uh, you know, sometimes I like to turn on like really obscure music with bizarre lyrics and just see how YouTube guesses it, like turn on the cocktail twins <laughs> or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's a bummer. This is, this is sad to read. It is. So now we're just dealing with like the, the machine written versions of things. Yeah. I also saw another article. I wonder if I can find this. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, someone posted a book. A, it, maybe it wasn't a book. It was a, uh, oh, where is it on here? Um, paper. Oh, well, I'll just tell you what it is and I'll, I'll search for the link later. The, they, they, someone had posted a um, medical like uh, paper. Uh, and it had like 13 doctors signed to it that connected coronavirus with some crazy stuff. And somehow it got put in a peer-reviewed journal and no one paid attention to it and just kind of snuck its way in there. And they think it was actually machine learning algorithms that made up all this fake news. Yeah. So, you know, automated text. I think that's going to be a real challenge going mm-hmm. forward. If, you know, like text that's generated that almost looks legitimate if you do a quick scan with your eye but mm-hmm. don't read it for content 
you know, I think that's going to be a, a, a new thing that we're going to see more and more now, uh, you know, kind of these deep fakes of things of people's faces being manipulated by video or writing that is in the voice of someone. And they can say, you know, put an attribution saying that it's this particular author, but it's not that author. Um, you're going to find more and more of that, you know, that this concept of a deep fake, whether it's in video or text or audio even. The, the sort of contextual piece, like you just mentioned, is going to be the tripping point there. So yeah. you're reading an article about how um, YouTube is trying to use machine learning to flag inappropriate content. So um, there's a real human toll involved in actual physical people having to flag all of this horrible, abusive content. Like there's been articles written about how they often need to like seek therapy during their jobs. And mm -hmm. um, it's hard on the brain. So what YouTube's been trying to do is to get machines to do it. Um, but it's over flagging. So I think uh, I'll have to pull up the article again. That's another thing we'll drop in the show notes later. But um, I think at in the last couple months, the machine learning algorithm flagged double the amount of videos. So it's, it's over flagging, which isn't, you know, maybe isn't a bad thing, but it's also letting letting bad content that only has very like, you know, it might be a video about health with like very subtle racist undertones that only a right. human can pick up on, not necessarily a machine. So I, I'm interested in seeing how that all pans out. Yeah, it's almost like there need to be, oh, I'm going to get yelled at by people, regulations. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think we're in a world that wasn't anticipated by any of the current media that it's going to be very difficult to to do something without some laws and regulations in place long term. Now, that's my opinion. You can certainly completely uh, comment me to death on the feed. That'd be great. But I don't know. I just think we're heading there. Speaking of heading there, this is a really serious problem. Um, this happened uh, over over the last couple of days. A ransomware attack has struck a major U.S. hospital chain. That's a serious problem. Um, so U Universal Health Services is the company, uh, and so they're a big chain of hospitals. Uh, I believe it's yeah, it's 400 facilities across the United States, Puerto Rico, and the United Kingdom. Uh, they had a Sunday morning ransomware attack. It took down its digital networks. This is according to Wired, and the author is Lily Hay Newman, just to give her attribution here. Um, so one emergency room technician, and I'm quoting the article, uh, tells Wired that their hospitals moved to all paper systems as a result of the attack. Uh, and this was uh, reported by Bleeping Computer. That's the original source, so I'll open that up there as well. Um, and so that's that's a lot of hospitals being affected. I mean, this is serious stuff, you know? Oh, yeah, and I actually saw this come up on my on the tech feed on Reddit, and the first comment was like, gosh, that poor nurse that, you know, just someone cracked her account or whatever. And people were like, it's not the poor nurse. Like, this is an admin thing, too. Like, where were the fail-safes in place for something like this? That's That's huge. Yeah, that means we're, I mean, any company that's vulnerable, I mean, anything that you, know, you have one computer that's not properly virus checked and they have someone browse something or there's some vulnerability where they could be attacked, um, it just spiders out to the network. And so if your network isn't completely secure, which there's no such thing as completely, right. but apparently <laughs> this is pretty bad. So we'll have to see what's going on with that. Uh, let me throw that link in the notes. Uh, and also, in addition to that one, uh, there was an interesting outage. I'm hoping it's online now, but, uh, Microsoft, Microsoft went down. Uh, their, 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 uh, it was active, I believe it was their, their active directory servers for office 365, uh, went offline. Uh, and so for that one, people were, uh, given an interesting little, 
Let me see here if I can find it. Microsoft 365 outage. This is on Y Combinator. Uh, and the screenshot that someone posted here was that. Sorry, we're having trouble signing you in. Uh, and this was late at night. Um, but someone even got hit when they used Visual Studio Enterprise. Because Visual Studio Enterprise, the license can be on, on, the, on, on the cloud. So it goes to phone home every month. And so if you open it up after not having it open or not being activated in the last month, it's going to phone home and say, am I licensed? And it says, no, you can't. So you then can't use Visual Studio Enterprise. So this was a big deal for a couple of hours last night. I'm assuming at this point that it's fixed. Um, and if it's not, that's a bigger problem. Let's see here. I'll scroll way to the bottom. <laughs> oh, boy. Looks to be fixed at least partially 16 hours ago. So I'm sure it's up by now. But that, that's another thing. I mean, when you, when you uh, rely on cloud resources for things like authentication and security, um, you know, you do run the risk of that resource being offline and your resources suddenly being offline because of it. So one of the, the, the downsides of the cloud when it goes down uh, for a service is that you go down as well with it sometimes, you know? Yeah, I wonder what that post-mortem is going to look like, like we talked about in an earlier episode. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Oh, I have some, I have fun one. Um, so this is someone's quarantine project in Philadelphia. I really enjoyed this. So he's working from home, um, decided to Shazam every single song that he heard blasting outside of cars driving by. <laughs> Um, and added them to a Philly playlist, which is called Gerard Jam. I think he was on like second and Gerard at the time. Um, pretty interesting, just like auditory snapshot of Philly during quarantine. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of really trappy stuff, kind of what you'd imagine. But there's also some like Charlie Parker. You got the Pointer Sisters on there. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a really fun little snapshot. Jazz head out there. Awesome. Yep. It's a Motown suite. All right. Yeah, yeah. So do you, do you want to post that? Uh, you have that uh, pocket lip? Uh, or is that? Um, yeah, is I dropped it? it in the comments there. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, I have another uh, geeky topic, uh, a good one. Um, so JavaScript uh, people, we need to talk about something. And that's uh, asynchronous activity. When you want to do something in the background, right? We all know that, uh, you know, you can do... Uh, Am I showing this screen right now? It will be. There it is. We all know that uh, you use things like promises or async await uh, in Node um, to get things done in the background or in your browser. Uh, but, you know, one of the problems with this is that at the very top level of Node.js, you have to create a function to run the function just to do the await keyword with async and await. Um, so this is a geeky little topic, but apparently they are now enabling with a flag, a top level of support for await, the keyword await in your top level piece of code in Node.js 14.3. So this little article here gives you an example on how it might work. Um, this is not going to work in a browser. You're going to have to create a function in a browser just like you did before uh, and run that function. This is not a huge issue. Uh, uh, but, you know, bottom line is you can experiment with this. So if you created, let's say, a project with NPM, you install Axios as your, your uh, Ajax or, you know, HTTP library. 
You can set your type of your project to module. Very important thing. So if it's a node module project and you start a program in it, uh, you know, like this is the program here. We import Axios, which is the thing that can do a, a get call so, or whatever else. And this is doing a get. Uh, we can use the await keyword without doing a function that marks it as async. Ooh, exciting. But only if you do node harmony top level await. So apparently at some point in the nearish future, maybe by uh, 15 of node instead of 14, uh, we're going to see that that will be a default thing flipped on. Harmony, by the way, is the one of the flag sets that turns on features that are coming out in the future. It was originally created for uh, ES 2015 when they had all the major changes to JavaScript to turn on features like promises built into the language and you know other things. Um, and now this is one of the new flags. Oh, interesting little geeky thing. All right, uh, and I posted that in the notes as well. Anything else on your end, Becca? Yeah, yeah, there's a really good Ars Technica article in the last week, and this one is a crossover between programming and music, which I'm always really excited about. I'm gonna drop okay. right in here right now. Um, so let me share my screen. Okay, so it is called Deep Algebra for Deep Beats, The Beautiful Sounds of Musical Programming. And it is all about making music, electronic music, with programs. Oh, I love this. Oh, oh, it's so cool. So um, it started out, like, I, I can't really go into the, the specifics. You have to read the article to really nail down on, like, how these people set up their, their stations to make these sounds. Um, but it started with a guy using just just code. So like uh, it would trigger certain noises. He would kind of take apart input noises as well. Um, and then it broke down even further to a guy actually from Philadelphia. Um, I think his last name's Fields. Jonathan Fields. Yes, or William Fields. So he ended up making sounds using almost no input at all. He basically created his own instrument um, and as you can see on the screen here, he had an iPad that he he put like a, a visual interface on. So um, that was all well and good. And he was like making these really random generated sounds using code. But then he found um, a button for randomizing it. And like that's where it got really cool. So he would randomize the parameters that these lines of code were reading and it would come back with these totally bizarre and unexpected sounds. Um, so he just like played with this for long enough to get a sense of like different genres, I guess, started to emerge from it. That mm -hmm. he would then sort of collect into this this interface that he has here, um, and then he would tap each one, and he described it as almost like playing a slot machine. You would hit one of a general genre, and you would kind of just get what you get. Um, and he started putting all of these together. Now, this is this is not for sale. You can read in the article how he set the whole thing up, but he calls it his his fields OS, uh, basically a self-made instrument that runs code to make random noises. Um, so he's just one member of this kind of larger community that's doing this right now. Um, they call them they they call they throw these um, what are they called rave. Algorithms instead of algorithms. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, they all get algorithms. Yep, and they can. You can even see the code. Like here's just an example of what it kind of looks like. 
I'll turn the sound off, but you can see all the <laughs> variables and parameters all changing to make different sounds. That's really cool. It is. That's so really cool. Yeah, yeah. So I really had a fun read with this one. Like I said, I'm not doing the article justice nearly at all. It's extremely technical, musical, but if you get a chance, check this one out if you like the crossover of tech and music too. So I'm going to throw a couple of things out at you. My brother, you went to Temple for a while. My brother went to uh, Temple for music and he got a, a doctorate um, in music composition and performance. Uh, and so he was working years ago. Now that, you know, this is like in the nineties and early OOs, he was working with a tool called C sound and P sound. Uh, and so there's all sorts of like computer programmed music stuff out there. He has a friend uh, who's professor, um, with him who does electronic music as well. There's a whole big thing, Princeton sound kitchen. Uh, if you search that up, the Princeton Sound Kitchen was a group of people and may still be where they do laptop computer performances. So they have like a laptop ensemble and they go out there and they do that. But I want to share on the screen because this is the cool. I love this stuff. Um, I love this stuff, too. Absolutely. So let me let me show you. If you wanted to do something like this and you were interested in programming music, there is this really cool tool out there from the, the Princeton Sound Kitchen. Uh, chuck.cs.princeton.edu I'm just going to put this in here uh, called Chuck and Chuck is let me see if I can fire it up probably can't um, yeah I'm not going to go through all that right now but it's, it's basically a programming interface to write programs to make music and it's got all sorts of like programmatic algorithms you can do just like this kind of stuff you can randomize things you can do anything you want with it runs on Linux, Windows and Mac uh, and it's another one of these tools, and it's really, really cool. Um, I wish I had a screenshot of it, but uh, they, it's got a pretty interesting group of people, programming uh, people out there that, that have written stuff for it before. But like the, uh, you know, some examples here that they have, you know, I'll show you an example here. So like FM synthesis, frequency modulated synthesis by hand. That's what the programming language looks like. So you program this weird-looking language. I don't know what's written in. Uh, it's its own little language, but uh, you can even do things rec like recording. So you can you can get um, you can get information and record it somehow. Uh, you can do things like an echo effect. So this would basically turn on a digital audio. So so this. Audio to digital, uh, analog to digital converter to some sort of gain audio stage, like an amplifier to a digital audio converter. And then you can say, you know, set up delay and gain feedback and turn on delay features and then just run it infinitely. So whatever you feed into it uh, has like some sort of echo of itself. So I don't profess to understand the syntax of this thing. I played with it a couple times and went, man, if I was still in college and had some time on my hands, I would have a blast with this stuff. <laughs> but it's out there. There's a ton of stuff. And I would definitely check out uh, Princeton Sound Kitchen, in fact. That's very cool. The other one that they, they kept mentioning a lot throughout the article is this one called Super Collider, which is apparently... Yeah, so it this runs is them. Like, yeah, stateless declarative phrases. Um, yep. is, yeah. These guys are the poo. They are great. Um, so the Princeton Sound Kitchen, I believe this is them. Maybe this isn't them. I don't know. 
music at Princeton, this is it. So, you know, they, they would do all sorts of interesting things like, uh, oh, I can't find anything useful here. Looks like it's the Department of Music site now. So maybe or maybe not, it's there. I'll, I'll, you know what, I'll do some more research and I'll drop some links in. But cool stuff. Um, I believe that that thing you're talking about is it comes from them as well. I think so. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah I think it, it does. It seems like it was so kind of in the weeds, the language to begin with, that more and more people are working on it to try and make it just a little bit more accessible. Um, but the oh, guy yeah. who created his own interface added that random piece to it, which makes it really interesting. Yeah, this is what really interests me right here, like the building building like a different wave type like a sine or a sawtooth wave or adding pink noise to it or white noise pink noise is noise with a colored effect where there's like a range of of audio frequencies that it's in whereas white noise is completely randomly distributed um you know it looks like there's all sorts of interesting ways of accessing this the main this may be a different group of people supercollider.github.io another super super cool thing i've always had an interest just because being a musician um some of that stuff really kind of makes me interested in anyway that's my my jam <laughs> all right uh i guess that's it for the week uh, i'm trying to think do you have anything else before we stop because i think i'm out that's all i got that was okay. a good grab bag episode <laughs> yeah yeah it's all over the map do what you get don't get upset <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like this then you submit an article's recommendation to at techcast yeah. On the Chariot TechCast Twitter feed, which we would love to hear from you on again at TechCast. Uh, and uh, that's it for a week. So, hey, Becca, thanks for the cool links. I love the computer music ones. That's pretty awesome. Thank you, Ken. All right. You have a good week. All right. You too. Bye. <laughs>